You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. The Catholic Psyche Podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended to take the place of medical or mental health treatment, therapy, or diagnosis. You should always consult a trained mental health or medical professional for such treatment. You're listening to episode two of the Catholic Psyche Podcast. This is Chris. This is Sarah. This is Deacon Basil. So today we're going to have Deacon Basil share a lot of his wisdom with us about his favorite monk <coughs> and his favorite ancient method of diagnosis and treatment. Um, I think the best way to start it off would just be to have you give us a brief overview of what you're going to talk about, and then we can ask you some specific questions and get deeper into it. Yeah. So a little bit about kind of me and, and my journey um, in psychotherapy is, you know, I was actually in, in Roman seminary for three years. And uh, when I was there, um, we would be working a lot with people on spiritual things. We'd be praying through um, different issues that people were having. And I, I really started to see the intimate connection between the spiritual and the psychological, where, you know, a lot of the things that we were working on um, were both definitely spiritual, but also certainly had a psychological component to them in, in, in some way. And so over time, what I would eventually do is leave the seminary, and, and then that really started my journey towards um, becoming a, a, a counselor and a, a therapist today. But I always had this desire to maintain that spiritual side in there, that, that, that spirituality, so that the psychological is not sort of devoid from any kind of experience of, of, of the spirit. Um, over time, what I would do is, is involvement in the East, you know, really led me to this one brilliant, brilliant therapist, um, psychotherapist, and his name was Evagrius of Pontus. Um, and you know, um, you guys aren't here, so you can't see Chris kind of snickering at that. Evagrius of Pontus was one of the desert fathers and, uh, he developed an entire sort of psycho spiritual method that he called the eight evil thoughts. And it was a, a treatment, a, a sort of symptomatology, um, and diagnosis method that also had a spiritual um, component to it. And then also had treatment on how to, how to, how to work with those. Um, and so that, you know, for me, it was just eye-opening and this was this was many years ago but it was just so eye-opening to see how mm. insightful Evagrius was um, into into the human mind and really I mean he he, he developed cognitive behavioral <laughs> therapy he didn't call it cognitive behavioral therapy but he developed cognitive behavioral therapy what 1700 years before um, Aaron Beck and um, Albert Ellis you know developed developed it in the 20th century it's not it bad really a wonderful beautiful um, Beautiful thing. So for uh, our uninitiated listeners, maybe we'll just go over some real basics. What is a desert father? And what's the difference between a desert father and a church and a non-desert church father? Yeah, well, one goes to the desert and the other one stays in the church, Chris. Do you, oh. get, do you get that, listeners? <laughs> I mean, I knew that. I was just asking for, for our audience. And why do they go to the desert? Why do they go to the desert? Well, yeah, so, so when Christianity was legalized, you know, of course... We talk about the early church all the time, and you know Christianity was illegal for the first um, 110 uh, years. I know Give there's someone take. out there that's going to be, oh, well, it was longer, it was shorter, you know, okay, it, whatever. It's not our Constantine legalized it, and all of a sudden Christianity went from being a church in the 
in the um, catacombs to be in the major state religion in some capacity. And so it became easy to be a Christian for the first time. And uh, the church fathers, especially St. Anthony, Anthony the Great um, and Evagrius and the others, really saw this as as a big problem because now you don't have the temptation or the, the, the sort of threat of being martyred. And what they did then is they said, well, we need to go out and do a radical life mm-hmm. of, of Christianity um, and, and live this radical life of Christianity in a unique way. So St. Anthony the Great, he wasn't the first, but you know, we, we call him the Great because he was one of the first, um, went off into the desert and, uh, and started to basically martyr themselves in every moment of their, of their mm-hmm. lives. Not like, not in any weird way, but like, you know, constant prayer, constant fasting, and slowly bring themselves into complete alignment with the Lord. Yeah, one way I've heard it put is that um, with the legalization of Christianity, it was the first time in history that you had the phenomenon of like cultural Christians. Like, oh yeah, you know, the Roman neighbors are Christians, so maybe I'll sign up for it too. And you started to get this like lackadaisical, um, lukewarm type of Christianity. So we needed we needed some pretty cool desert people to revitalize it. Yeah. And um, the church fathers, on the other hand, are the theologians of the church in the first, you know, in the, there's different ways of cutting it off, but perhaps we could say that the eighth ecumenical council is, is generally accepted as the, the time of the church fathers. Uh, before that is the time of the church fathers. And, and so, the eighth ecumenical uh, council is? The eighth ecumenical council is a universal council where all the bishops got together. This one was um, the icons, mm-hmm. the eighth ecumenical council. And so that's kind of the church, the time of the church fathers. It's just the theologians yeah. that, that are writing about it. Important, Important early thinkers and writers. Right. Yeah. And, and we're always, especially in Eastern Christianity, we're always trying to get back to those first writers and really developing on their thoughts. They came before us, and so we're developing on that. So I suppose you could say every desert father is a church father, but not every church father is a desert father. Um, yeah, so there the are genus, that, For Aristotelians out there, the genus would be church father, and the <laughs> species or specific difference would be de- desert type. Right, absolutely. <laughs> I don't even know what that means, but it sounds good. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's really the way in which it kind of developed. And so um, Evagrius was one of those very, very early desert fathers. Um, going out in, into the into the desert to really seek the Lord in the trial of, of slow martyrdom of, of oneself. Cool. So which desert did he go to? <laughs> so he went to the deserts of Egypt, you know, so outside of Alexandria, which was at that time one of the major centers for Christianity mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and remained for a very long time one of the centers of Christianity. Um, so out, the deserts um, outside of Alexandria. And they would go back to Alexandria. I mean, it's not that, like they all stayed out there constantly. They would go back and sell things to be able to, you know, uh, they would sell, they would sell baskets. Actually, they'd be basket weavers. Um, and, and so they would go back, sell those and then come back into the desert. And so, you know, they, they we should all in honor of them, we should all take up like a really obscure manual trade. Yes. Like, uh, crocheting. Well, that's not really that obscure, but I mean, if anyone wants to teach me how to weave baskets, I would love to weave baskets on the side and then, you know, do some psychotherapy as my did, day gig. Did anyone ever get told um, about, you know, ridiculous majors in college? It's like, oh, it's like taking underwater, underwater basket ba- weaving. Yeah. <laughs> underwater <laughs> basket weaving. Why did I think? I thought of that, too, and then when I heard that. Yeah, but, you didn't realize that, you know, that actually might be a precursor to a deep spiritual life of the Desert Fathers. Was, sand, uh, learning how to uh, sand, 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 under sand, sand basket weaving. You know? Sand dune sand basket, dune. <laughs> basket weaving is like the opposite of underwater. Yeah. Different schools of basket weaving. But you know, you still can't breathe in sand. 
Yeah, that's true. That's right. That's right. So let's let's get right to the point. What does what does a you know third century? Am I getting that right? Third, second fourth, century? Fourth century. What does a fourth century desert monk have to do with modern psychology? Yeah. Well, what what Evagrius was trying to do is he went out to the desert and started a life out there. And he was, he was, you know, very accomplished in the world before that. But he goes out into the desert and he has this problem where monks are coming to him, these first year monks, and asking, how do we be a monk? How and dare they? How dare they? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, it's really important to have a spiritual father. And so what they would do is they would come to him and ask him how to live this life. And what Evagrius decided was he wanted to come up with you know, a way of really transforming their spiritual and psychological lives. Of course, he wouldn't call it a psychological, but their spiritual lives. So he would basically understand and, and try and diagnose what the problems were that the monks were having when they would come to him. Nice. And so he developed this entire clinical model um, that he called the eight evil thoughts. Um, and, and these are the problems that the monks were having, how to identify them, and then also how to treat them. So I know a little bit about the evil thoughts from having spoken with you about this. And um, our listeners might be interested to know that there's a connection here between the eight evil thoughts and a very popular concept in Western theology known as the seven deadly sins. Right. Yeah. No, um, Evagrius uh, developed this entire, I mean, his, his teaching spread like crazy um, throughout, throughout the desert. Um, St. John Cashin who eventually was sent to Western, Christi uh, to Western Christianity. He went to Gaul, which is in France. Um, and he would then uh, continue this teaching and actually develop it. And he had some really keen insights around certain things. Um, and so he'd develop it. And then from there, it would trickle down into uh, Western Christianity and be in Rome itself, where St. Gregory the Great would transition the eight evil thoughts into the seven deadly sins. Um, you guys are taking off your shoes. I don't know what's going on here. This is freaking it's more out. comfortable. Oh, okay. Just relax. Just getting really zen. Just getting really zen. Something about these getting, evil thoughts is putting me at ease. It's just getting so <laughs> groovy in here, guys. Um, uh, well, so that you know, to be uh, ironic, this is a this is a, a point of entry for you know for for a, a somewhat of a Thomistic persuasion because Saint Thomas Aquinas takes the seven deadly sins at face value and writes essentially a treatise on them. I yeah. I don't know that. St. Thomas even knew their origin. And uh, I, I don't know that many people actually know that about the seven deadly sins, that they come from a relatively obscure Eastern monk who's never been canonized and who wrote them not as a, not as a, a moral manual or as a theological dissertation, but rather as a, a sort of treatment and diagnostic protocol. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Evagri is actually... Um was declared a heretic um, for some stuff at the end of his life. Not, not, not the eight evil thoughts, but some stuff at the end of his life. Um, and yeah, but I mean, we um, still quote Origen and Tertullian. Well, there's yeah, a connection yeah. there. Right? Yeah. And, and he was declared an originist heresi uh, heretic. He uh, followed Origen in Origen. At the end, at the end, you know. And, and well, you know, don't I, freak out. I was, uh, I was listening to a lecture on Evagrius earlier this week in prep for this. I did my homework. And this lecture was making a distinction between the, like, th theoretical... Evagrius stuff and the practical Evagrius stuff. So the theoretical stuff might get weird, right? Like he yeah. might, I think he believed in the pre-existence of souls or at least entertained that idea or mm -hmm. maybe the, um, the universal salvation of all souls at the end of time. Right. Um, but, but the practical stuff, every, any Orthodox Christian today can take with them as a invaluable toolkit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or mm -hmm. Orthodox or Catholic. What do you mean Orthodox? Well, but yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely Capital right. That'd be great if we had Orthodox listeners. Yeah, so, uh, we will. We will. Um, 
I hope. Um, no, I think I think that's you know that's that's really there. So um, I think you can see the sort of intense transition from the eight evil thoughts to the seven deadly sins. I mean, being a number difference, but but really the the, the major difference being you've got the sin. But you also have the thought that precedes that those kind of practical sins, and so that's one of the ways in which um, one of the things that I was really attracted to about Evagrius is that that it, it it ties in with that sort of cognitive understanding that we that we talk about in psychotherapy all the time that it's about the thoughts as well. Do you know which two um, Cash or Saint Gregory the Great combined? Yeah, it's um, he didn't just combine a few. He uh, he transitioned them, and and you know, for example, he moved despondency, which is Acadia, um, to uh, sloth. And yeah. so, like he did all sorts of stuff. The one that I think is probably the hardest for most people to understand is um, is sadness. Um, and so he really transitioned sadness and and developed it uh, with um, vainglory into um, into envy, oh, which okay. in some ways is a really accurate. I think Evagrius actually probably would have agreed with some of those things. Wow! Nice. But um, yeah. but it is it, it definitely was that kind of transition. So so he he, he developed a uh, sort of unique understanding of, of vice, but um, it definitely based off of the concept of of uh, Evagrius's work. Okay. So I I hope in some future podcast we can do a little primer on Thomistic understanding of emotion. But, I think that's on the on the schedule for like three weeks from now. Actually. Oh, lovely! But in the meantime, <laughs> there's a schedule. In the meantime, my ah. like a some sort of like sirens going off in my brain. Like, wait a minute, sadness. That's it. That's evil. Right. So, in order to understand that, we got to go back a little bit. Yeah. So maybe for, we can for, we can um, trace for back. clients. I always say, okay, in order to ask this question, I have to actually go way back and tell you a long story. Right. Um, so let me go back and tell you a long story here. Um, Evagrius, the eight evil thoughts. He starts off with gluttony, um, and I think for those of us that, <laughs> I mean, maybe you two don't. Sarah's struggle. laughing yeah, because she's a glutton. She's a glutton. Yeah. But um, no, it's. Uh, We're cutting that out. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Please do. I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay, so okay, all right. Where Let's start, start over again. Back gluttony. to gluttony. So the whole concept of, of you know it starts with the gluttony. It starts with gluttony, and so Evagrius would say the monk starts by over desire for food and over consumption for food, and then from that it leads then to fornication. And oh, I get it. Like you want a burger, but then you also want like you're like oh I can't have that burger, so I'll just go um, sleep you know, with that girl, have some sexual debauchery. I, I I mean maybe maybe this is just a little. Um, over the top here, but at least no, I totally understand when you inflame one passion, the other passion. Yeah, no, that, that that's completely um, the case. Yeah. yeah, and I think I think you know for well, yeah. Moving on, uh, so so you move from gluttony to then fornication. Fornication. Um, Evagrius thought that you had to have money in order for the monk to pay for fornication. So then he would then move on to um, to avarice. And well, yeah. How else are you going to pay for a prostitute? Well, okay, thank you. Uh, so. Yeah, exactly. So then you have this. Well, these monks were like smelly. They weren't going to get it any other way. <laughs> Fair enough. So you then move from that when you don't have the ability to fulfill um, the avarice because you never will. I mean, look at what people always want more. Um, you then move into anger because you get upset about that. Mm. From that anger, it eventually turns into sadness, and that sadness is not. I'm depressed. We'll talk about that, you know, eventually here with the podcast, but it's not I'm depressed. It's I am sad because I want things that I will never have. 
I mean, sometimes like even uh, Acadia is, is defined as like a sadness at like the difficulty of the spiritual life. Yeah. Something like that. So, so what strikes me about this is in, in Thomistic thought, there's this concept of the unity of the virtues, oft misunderstood. What it means essentially is that you can't have perfected one virtue without perfecting them all because of the interrelatedness of the virtues. You need prudence to exercise, um, you know, to exercise fortitude in right measure. And uh, certainly the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love yeah. build each other up. Mm-hmm. But this is almost like a unity of the vices. Like you can't only have a ton of gluttony. If you right. have a ton of gluttony, it's going to lead you into, or wherever you want to set the starting point, it's going to lead you into other vices. And we see this all the time in our clients' lives and in our own lives, people we know. Yeah. The way um, an inordinate desire for something is not going to terminate there. It's going to spread like a like a virus, right? And it's going yeah. to cause all sorts of other problems. So that's what I'm hearing. And, yeah, and, and I think that's absolutely the case. Evagrius would actually say that there are three of the dead of the uh, evil thoughts that um, actually, when inflamed, become the others. Um, the, oh, interesting. And, and, and so. Like an evil trinity. Like an evil, yeah, the dark triad, for those of you who do psychodynamic I'll, work. I'll put a, like a tritone in the background okay. of that. <laughs> it's like a devil interval. <laughs> Just not accurate in some right. way of understanding music, but yeah, but, but scary, um, scary, yeah. scary music. So, so the thought would be that gluttony... Um, then develops when inflamed, you, you mix that with the rationality and it develops into um, the other, the other uh, evil thoughts. Also avarice. So, so gluttony is a desire for food. Avarice is a desire for things. And then the final one is vainglory, which is a desire for, um, a desire for others' esteem. Mm. And now that's a little different than self-esteem, but those three are particularly mm. there. So I want to tie this into the three roots of every single crime. Um, back when I was a freshman in, in college, I was a criminal justice major. Oh, wow. And I don't know, I don't know about the three I, I didn't know that, yeah. So basically, that, the three you. motives, the roots of every crime can be either sex, money, or power. And that's really what I am hearing. Because gluttony isn't just desire for food, it's de- desire for physical pleasure, Yes. It's certainly, yeah. I mean, Evagrius, again, he's dealing with specific people at a specific time. But I yeah. think you can absolutely bring that kind of out as well. It's, it's, it's physical pleasure um, in, in whatever ways. It could be drugs. It could be you know, yeah. whatever, yeah. alcohol. It could be those, those things as well. Yeah. That's really cool. I didn't know about that. And my wife is doing, just uh, did a little Bible study uh, on the Beatitudes they watched a video of Bishop Barron talking about the Beatitudes, and he he identifies the um, the Beatitudes in relation to the desire for pleasure, for wealth, and for power. And the Beatitudes counteract those inordinate desires. So, when, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, in spirit. Those are things. Those are those are qualities that divest us of those mm-hmm. desires for those bad desires. I just had a great thought. Um, I wonder if the eight Beatitudes ever correspond to the eight evil thoughts. I, I, I would leave that to someone smarter than me to go and make those conclusions. But I think that would be really interesting. Someone you know, smart out what, there. Someone smart, it. yeah. Well, they, they, I mean, I'm sure there's, there's biblical genesis, right? Because all the Desert Fathers knew their scriptures inside and out. Yeah. So I'm sure a lot of it really does come from 
I don't know if there's a direct overlay, but I'm sure like... That would be cool. That would be cool. You know what's really um, interesting about the three, Gluttony, uh, Avarice, and Vainglory, is that Evagrius always has a treatment, right? Mm. And so his treatment for Gluttony is fasting. Mm-hmm. Which his, makes sense. Which makes perfect sense, right? His treatment for Vainglory, seeing, you know, wanting to be uh, the esteem of others is to find your right understanding in relation to God. So it's prayer. That makes perfect sense, too. Right, exactly. Let and me guess, it, let me guess, Avarice is tithing? Almsgiving. Almsgiving. Yeah. Almsgiving, perfect, yeah. also. And so, right. especially, you know, like, at my parish, um, I think the three preachers that we have there are always, you know, around Lent, we're always talking about prayer fasting and almsgiving, prayer fasting and almsgiving. There's a reason. It's not that we just, you know, have want these kind of traditions to hold on to. It's that these fasts, Lent, you know, in the East we have four fasts during the year, but these fasts are about helping us not sin. Yeah. Helping us find the ability to, to fight these vices. Yeah, and, and for, for the Eastern for the Eastern Church, sin is not naughty, naughty, you are so you're bad. bad. It's like a sickness that you need to be cured of, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, um, the, none of the divine command moralizing infiltrated the East, as far as I can tell. I mean, it wasn't <laughs> like, they didn't have- A little bit in Russia, but that, that's well, here and there. But that's that makes, Russia. That, that makes perfect sense. Um, yeah, so it's also, you know, for our listeners who maybe our listener, it'd be cool if this was the case, but our listeners who aren't necessarily even coming from a Judeo-Christian perspective, um, but are curious um, fellow travelers, for Evagrius, he's teaching us how to be healthy, how to be whole. Those things yeah. we talked about in the first podcast, how to be happy. Yeah. Yes. And everyone wants to be happy. Right. Well, that's I, I certainly do. Uh, but I have a question about <laughs> what's the deacon? What's the recommended Evagrius treatment for lust? Evil thought lust. Oh, God, it's it's hilarious, actually. Um, do you I mean, know it's what, not Sarah? Funny, but yeah, do you know it? Not off the top of my head. Okay, okay. it's really so, good. So it makes perfect sense too, just it, like the other no, ones. No, it does. Um, so Evagrius' big solution. Um, so he envisioned that um, if you drank too much water or ate moist food that you would, um, as a man, you would have a buildup of semen. you got to avoid moist, moist food. food. Yeah, so you'd have this buildup of semen. <laughs> no cake. Which would then lead to... Um, um, lust problems. Lust problems, yeah. yeah. Now, I do actually think there's some insight there, because if an, a development or an inflaming of, of uh, gluttony is um, terminates in fornication, then I do think that there's actually some insight into that it's not just a matter of not eating a lot of food. It's also saying, I need simple foods, mm-hmm. you know, I need simple foods as well. Um, and now that means eat healthily, eat, you know, in conjunction with your doctor's advice and blah, 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 blah. But maybe a little bit, you know, instead of that really nice cake, um, and I'm preaching to myself here, but instead of that nice cake, maybe some other. That um, nice moist cake, nice try moist like cake. a dry, brittle graham cracker. <laughs> or some cereal without milk, because... The first That's thing fun. I thought of when I heard about this moist food recommendation was the fact that John Kellogg, uh, our, you know, American, the American father of breakfast cereal, was himself uh, a strong proponent of sexual, sexual upright, beha- sexually upright behavior. And I wonder if... Uh, really? Yeah. Why do you know that? It's just Everybody a random knows fact. That. That was, the big, that was the big fix. He was an um, Adventist, an advocate of sexual abstinence. As a physician, Kellogg was well aware of the damaging impact of sexually transmitted disease, such as syphilis. I don't know if there's a connection with his breakfast cereal. 
and but probably he was a Puritan. Yeah. Yeah. And so no, no, no. Yeah, there's all sorts of things. You guys can look this up, um, you know, on your own time. But uh, how did we get here? <laughs> okay, so there's a key, there's no, a, no. there's a diagnosis for each, right? And there's a treatment for each. You know, Some of I, the treatments have held up better over right. the last fifteen hundred years, right? So I think I think the other the other thing is to just kind of say outright because we haven't quite said all eight of them clearly yet. You get gluttony, fornication, avarice. Uh, anger, sadness. You then have Acadia, vainglory, and pride. And now you can find, you know, Avagria saw those as sort of a typical course was that you start with with uh, with um, gluttony and you end with uh, vainglory and pride is mixed through all of them. But you know, he also had this concept that you would develop them and you could you could pick and choose at different times. Wait, you can have a favorite vice. Yeah, yeah. I mean. When I read all eight of those, I think, wow, that's like Tuesday before 8 a.m. That's like, you know, that's just me. Um, But I I do think that it's important to to also say that he had a, he understood that there was a vice or a a evil thought, and then he had a treatment for it. And always those treatments came in two forms, both the cognitive and the behavioral. And this is why he's he's so bloody brilliant. Like he developed cognitive behavioral therapy 1,700 years before anybody else. Anyways, The cognitive part is that he would he he would view these things these uh, these thoughts as sort of like demons. And now we've been better catechized, I think, by Hollywood on what demons are and how they uh, you know interact with us. And so we don't really have a very developed understanding of it. You know, The Exorcism of Emily Rose or whatever the other videos that come. Not out. a bad movie though. It's not bad, but I can't watch it's them. Not, I'm, okay, fair enough. <laughs> I appreciate that. I don't watch them either, but they're not necessarily accurate to the way in which we always on a regular basis will experience the uh sort of demonic activity it's in our thoughts not that we need to go and you know find the exorcist um but it's rather in our thoughts are are the sort of daily struggle against these evil thoughts that's how we experience the struggle of 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 the light and the dark you know of god and 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 the devil and so he developed this entire concept of talking back to the uh, to the uh, demon, but you know, talking back to the thought, which is, I mean, almost an identical con- uh, identical intervention to what we do in cognitive behavioral therapy. It also reminds me of our Lord in the desert during the temptation, well, kind of talking back to the devil. That that's exactly it. Oh that's exactly goodness. what I do. Is you don't just come up with it; you always put it back into the scriptures. You know, and so for mm-hmm. example, he, he wrote it all up, and I, I happen I happen to have what have it here um, oh in your in your mind's so eye. My mind's eye. No, I actually have the book. Um, but the entire <laughs> thought of it would be, um, you know, he wrote it all down. So um, when you turn to against the thought of the demon of Acadia that hates the manual labor uh, of the skill that it knows and wants to learn another skill by which it is better supported and which it will not be. Uh, it, it will not be arduous. So this is this is a thought, a sort of symptom of Acadia. Okay. Where you constantly hate what you're doing, so yeah. you want to try and find something else. This is, you know, like those people that go to grad school. I'm just kidding, Sarah. Um, you know, or those people who drop out of grad or school. Or drop out of grad school. I have never the, dropped never out dropped of grad out. school. I know, I'm trying to build you up over here. Yeah, that's yeah. right, that's right, yeah. So, um, but it's that, you know, it's like that constantly looking for something else. You know, a new career, a new career. I need I need something else. I need a new job. A this is so boring. I need a new project. Um, right. This, I can't think of what to write in this story anymore. I'm going to start a different story. Yeah. I can't finish a painting, so I'm going to start another painting. Oh, yeah. Or this a podcast, so we're going to, you know, whatever. A restlessness. A restlessness yeah. to that. So. The response to that then would be, you know, from Genesis, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the earth from which you were taken. For you are earth, and to earth you shall return. 
And so then when you have those thoughts, then the, th- the process would then be meditating upon that scripture passage to remember that reality. And I think, mm. you know, it's really, really cool. I mean, it's just so cool. So for, yeah, for our listeners who don't know, cognitive therapy was uh, an intervention or a, I guess a mode of psychotherapy developed in the 70s by kind of independently by two guys, Albert Ellis and Aaron Beck. They both had slightly different takes on it. One of them um, called it REBT, Rational Motive Behavior Therapy. The other one just called it Cognitive Therapy. But the idea is that your, you know, your your depressive symptoms or anxiety stems not from bad things that happen to you, but from the thoughts you have about the things that happen to you. I mean, you, you've given some great examples in the past, Deacon. You know, when you're driving on the highway and someone cuts you off, one person might think, well whatever, this happens. Another person might think, well, maybe that person's in a hurry to get somewhere important and uh, I'm not. And a third person might think, how dare they cut me off? Because I have a right to get to where I'm going and this person is malicious and people are always out to get me. Yeah. Yeah. Therapy is a matter of correcting that thought. Right. And then from that thought, the reaction then comes. That's right. The reaction, the emotion, the behavior. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, that, that is very much intertwined with what Evagrius is trying to get at here. And then he also has a behavioral side, you know, which sure. is you, you know, you do something about it. So for example, with gluttony, you know, we already kind of talked about the treatment for, for gluttony. It's fasting, you know, for, um, for uh, vainglory, it would be prayer. For Acadia, it would be perseverance, you know, that you persevere through this time. Yeah, do you, the thing that you're supposed to do. Do the thing you're supposed to do. Yeah. Do your laundry. Make your bed. <laughs> right. Do the dishes. Right. Go Absolutely. to work on time. Make your bed. Great. My wife Grace found a great like video of some lieutenant, army lieutenant. Oh no! no, no. Make yeah, your yeah, bed. Yeah. 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 Like, He's um, a former Navy SEAL, I think. Great. Yeah. Even better. Think, Step number one yeah. for him was make your bed, and mm-hmm. I mean this is totally anecdotal. I don't know any randomized control trials about this, but the guys I've known who just don't make their bed, like they don't have it figured out at all. Yeah. They just things just fall apart for them. That was my thing for Lent, like three years in a row for college, like during college, make my bed, just make my bed sometime throughout the day before I crawl back into it. Like I can make it five minutes before I brush yeah. my teeth and that counts. So what did, did you notice anything? Yeah. Did it help you get through the day? It helps so much. Yeah. Like when I make my bed first thing in the morning, then it's set and I don't have to think about it and it's just there. Yeah. And I did something. I accomplished something. Right. And when you accomplish one thing, you can accomplish another thing. Yeah. And it probably helped during the day with those thoughts. You know, it was like, mm-hmm. well, at least you did something, right? Yes. And I think I, I, I remember the this. Your own this, momentum. This, yeah, exactly. And, the, and this guy... Um, that this this video of of this this seal. I mean, I think he says, if you have had a miserable day, at least you can go back into a well made bed. You know yes. what? And I think there's really something to that. You yeah. do what you have to do. Yeah. Um, and and, you, and what you can. What's within your control? Right. Because your bed is within your control, but other things might not be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. That's very wise. So I mean, this is this is exactly what we hope to accomplish with our podcast: is finding these points of connection where ancient Christian thinkers somehow anticipate they're they're just totally vindicated by modern psychotherapy modern psychology and this is a great example so here's a question deacon can you actually use this stuff with a client can you use it today can you use a vagaris's manual yeah um i i have done it today um (laughs) great um you know i 
I think it would be naive to say that Evagrius had a full understanding of every aspect of mm-hmm. the human psyche and that there isn't things like psychopathologies that are going to be outside of the sort of evil thought right. realm. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think we have to be careful with sort of simplifying Evagrius or excuse me, simplifying the psyche into to fit into what Evagrius was getting at. Sure. But I do think all of us have experienced the evil thoughts in some capacity. All of us have experienced all eight of them at some point. Um, and, and so the way in which I've, I've utilized it quite a bit is talking in terms of about that. And, you know, I have his text talking back on my desk, you know, um, even now, where we go through it and sometimes we'll talk about them and pray over those kind of passages and, and, and really kind of utilize them as a way of talking back to those thoughts. The other thing is, is that we'll talk back about, you know, we'll talk back to those thoughts, but we'll also talk back to those beliefs that we have about ourselves, which is another aspect, a core belief in Evagrius, in Evagrius but also within um, the, the modern psychotherapy as well. Yep. So we talk back to those, those thoughts and those beliefs in, in really intense ways. Um, and, and I found, you know, personally, I've found it to be very instrumental in my life. Um, I have a long way to go to, to, to um, being victorious over any of the evil thoughts. We're all um, works in progress right, here. But, but disclosure. it does um, definitely give me um, a leg up on, on these kind of things. And, and, it, and it, I, I think it also gives this, this really important aspect of like, you know, what is the psychological benefit of fasting? And I want to be very clear here. Do not start a fasting regiment without consulting a, uh, a um, mental health professional if, if you're in therapy, but also a doctor. Um, you know, you, you need to be in line with those kind of things. There's a lot that can that, um, you can you can be really messed up. By, yes. Uh, yeah. By those not, but there is some significant psychological benefit. That can Sarah's come like, from. yeah, when I first became a Byzantine, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Yeah. No, seriously, I have um, hypoglycemia. So if I mm-hmm. don't eat like every four hours or so, I want to murder people. And that's not healthy for anyone. No, it also explains <laughs> a lot of our interactions over the last few years. <laughs> You're excused every time. Well, I mean, and my wife you know, is type one diabetic. And so yeah. for her, fasting looks different. It just yeah. does. And this yeah. is how it is. And, and I don't think you know, that it has to be exactly the way in which Evagrius would have thought about it. doesn't it, have to be moist food. It can be like damp food. It can be, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't even have to be food. It no, can be a moist, some, uh, moist towelette. Yeah. <laughs> so you yeah, avoid. Yeah, you, you, yeah, all sorts of things that you can avoid. But I do think, you know, it's important to really keep that in mind and, and be gentle with ourselves. Sure. Um, because the spiritual life, the psychological life, it is a, a long long journey it's not a sprint mm-hmm. yeah one um, thing I, I work with my kids on for so long self-esteem was the big the big concept in education and psychotherapy but I, I prefer self-compassion yeah and I work with my kids a lot on being gentle with yourself you know we make mistakes we're imperfect and we're not no one no one earns points by you know like doing it all on their own how we get through our days by relying heavily on others and by forgiving ourselves and we stop short, of course, asking God for forgiveness and realizing that we need to take small incremental steps to get to this sort of perfection to which we're called. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would, the first thing that comes to mind for me with these eight evil thoughts is maybe work with work on one at a time, right? You probably don't want to tackle all eight at once. Yeah. It's like finding eight, an eight headed, eight headed monster. Yeah. Like a Hydra. Well, and it's like one thing at a time. And, and that's why Lent and 
advent, what we call Phillips fast in the East. That's why these things are so incredibly important is because they, they are us working on those, those three, um, those three that then turn into the others, the three, the, the gluttony, avarice, and, and vainglory. What are the four fasts again? I should know The four this. fasts in, in, in the East? Yes. Yeah. So, um, what we, we, we call them all little Lent's or excuse me, Lent's and then you have gr the great Lent. So L great Lent Lentitos. Is, Lentitos. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, Lentitos. <laughs> but Lent, you know, great Lent is before Easter, mm -hmm. you know, and then just after Pentecost, what we just finished a few weeks back, um, is in preparation for, uh, the feast of St. Peter and Paul. So that comes the, the Sunday after Pentecost that starts. And then we have the shortest of them, which is actually one of my favorites, not just because of the shortest, but just because of you know, the time of the year, it, it's just really a wonderful time. It's just, it's the two weeks before the Dormition, which is um, called in the, in the Roman church, the uh, Assumption, right? Yep. Yeah, the Assumption. Um, and then um, from November 15th through, uh, through uh, December is the, uh, what we call Philip's Fast, which is the preparation for Easter. And the reason why it's called Philip's Christmas. Fast is... Yeah, I'm sorry, Christmas, yeah. Um, One of them. We, we, call, we call Christmas the, uh, the winter Pascha. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Ancient Byzantine uh, tradition. Ancient Byzantine tradition, yeah. Um, but it, because we, we start fasting 40 days before, which comes out to right at uh, the Feast of St. Philip um, in November. So th those are the four, the four fasts. And, you know, they, they should be taken seriously. Um, Advent in the Roman Church and... Uh, and, um, and uh, Lent, great, yeah. Lent in the in the uh, Roman Church should be taken seriously. Fridays and uh, in the Roman Church should be taken seriously all year round. Um, Wednesdays and Fridays in the Byzantine Church should be taken seriously. You know that, that these are these are therapeutic um, interventions as they are appropriate. But if you're really bad at it, although not not yeah, not a substitute. I'm sorry, what was that, sir? But if you're really bad at it, it's okay to mess up. It's totally okay to mess up. I mess up all the time. Yeah, what? I had meat today. Did you? Yep. Oh, but well. I fasted from social media. Okay. Yeah. No. It, it's important to, to have that kind of that kind of leeway. Today's a Friday, is why she's pointing that out. Yeah. So I had a friend who was uh, who converted from Anglicanism, and he he took issue with the fact that you can choose anything to fast from now on Fridays. He thought the church should just give you like three options, like meat, sleep on the floor, or cold shower. Just pick oh. one. <laughs> it's too it's too much work to like decide. Um, yeah, just for, so for listeners who are interested in learning more, what, I mean, what can they seek out? Uh, one thing I want to recommend is the Philokalia collection of ancient Eastern texts, uh, including a few essays by Evagrius, as well as one, uh, on guarding the intellect by St. Isaiah the Solitary, which is very similar. Yeah, those are all, um, really phenomenal. I mean, there's so much, there's so much out there, um, that is really great. Uh, Evagrius's collective works were, um, just translated a couple of years back and, and kind of compiled all together and, um, you know, Oxford Press did that, and it's just, you know, it's just a phenomenal text. Um, it's got, uh, particularly, I think what is important is the On the Evil Thoughts, which is his sort of flat-out book, On the Evil Thoughts, um, and then the, uh, the Practicos, which is a little bit more, um, this is the practical life, and then his real philosophic text on, on the evil thoughts is On Thoughts, or On the Logismoi, which is Greek for thoughts. Um, and so that would be there. Um, the other the other places that you can do is certainly our, our short form um, has been going over each of them in depth. Um, and so, you know, tune in for those um, and we'll go over each of the uh, evil thoughts and kind of those treatments in particular. How do you pronounce um, the translator's name? Uh, Robert 
Shinkevich? Oh, that's Polish. I mean, it looks like Shinkevich. I... Shinkevich. It's, I, so I speak Polish, and I know yeah. about, all about that. All, <laughs> Weird language. Yeah. All, right. all, all of them are available on Amazon for reasonable, um, although I keep noticing that these kind of specialty texts keep getting more expensive as people buy them. So hurry, quickly, get them. Get them while you can. There's also a whole tradition of mostly Eastern Orthodox writers yeah. writing on psychotherapy. Like, Orthodox psychotherapy is totally a term that you can Google and yeah. get tons of stuff. So Orthodox psychotherapy is basically like modern psychiatrists and therapists in the Eastern Church saying like, oh, yeah, our tradition discovered this stuff. So why shouldn't we mine it for all it's worth? Absolutely. And and that is exactly what we integrate in um, in therapy here at Mount Tabor. That's right. Well. All right. So uh, go home and don't have any evil thoughts. Just or, don't or moist think. food. <laughs> <laughs>